welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with the Russell Colgate Distinguished University Professor Emeritus of Astronomy, Anthropology, and Native American Studies, Anthony Avini. Professor Avini started teaching at Colgate in 1963 and is widely known as one of the founders of Mesoamerican archaeoastronomy for his research in the astronomical history of the Maya Indians of ancient Mexico. Professor Avini is a lecturer, speaker, and editor slash author of three dozen books on ancient astronomy. His ex expertise is routinely called upon by the press often to talk about solar eclipses, the Mayan calendar, and the end of the world. Avini has spoken or written on astronomy-related subjects on the Learning Channel, the Discovery Channel, PBS, NOVA, BBC, NPR, The Larry King Show, NBC's Today Show, Unsolved Mysteries, and in the New York Times, Newsweek, and USA Today. He has lectured in more than 300 universities around the world. Avini was featured in Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 10 best university professors in the country, and he was also voted National Professor of the Year by the Council for the Advancement and Support of Education in Washington, D.C., the highest national award for teaching. At Colgate, he received, among other teaching awards, the Alumni Award for Excellence in Teaching and the Phi Eta Sigma National Honor Society Distinguished Teaching Award voted by the freshman class of 1990. The author of more than two dozen books, Avini has more than 300 research publications to his credit, including three cover articles in Science Magazine and key works in American Scientist, The Sciences, American Antiquity, Latin American Antiquity, and the Journal of Archaeological Research. In 2016, after 54 years at Colgate, Professor Ravini retired from teaching full-time, and just last year, his most recent work, Star Stories, Constellations and People, was published by Yale University Press and is now widely available. Professor Ravini, welcome to 13. Well, thank you, Daniel, and greetings to uh, all uh, raiders and raiderettes out there from the quad which resembles a uh, an abandoned burial ground as I sit near it. It's uh, really remarkable to see <coughs> Colgate at its least energetic in all of the years I've ever been there and uh, we truly uh, miss the interaction that goes on in our college and uh, but anyway here we are on Zoom which is the next best thing to being there. <laughs> And uh, this is uh, obviously going to be difficult to do justice in just 13 questions, but I'm going to try. Um, sure. So I think we need to start off kind of at the beginning here. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past, but I think for folks tuning in who have never heard of archaeoastronomy, uh, tell us a little bit about that field of study and how it came to be. Well, astronomy is about looking up, isn't it? And archaeology is about looking down and digging into the earth. Uh, but these two disciplines meet, or they met back in the late 60s when I was participated. I don't want to claim the sole authority on this, but I participated in a merging of disciplines before interdisciplinary learning really was in vogue. Uh, I define it as the study of um, the workings of heaven by cultures of the past. In other words, we use both the written and the unwritten record. Uh, the, the written record and texts where we have it, in Greece and in the Maya world, for example, 
but also, more importantly, the unwritten word, which you see through the observation of archaeological ruins, the orientation of buildings and sacred structures toward the sun, the moon, and the stars, the symbolism that you see in the architecture and the art. So it really is a merging of a lot of different disciplines. And I find myself now, after all the years I've spent doing this, some 50 years, straddling the social sciences and the sciences. And it kind of gives me a really interesting perspective on how things, uh, how things work. So your new book, Star Stories, Constellations and People, is kind of an atlas of sorts for the night sky. And you delve into the stories behind the constellations from a wide range of cultures. Can you tell me a little bit about how the, that book came together and how you decided on the different um, constellations to feature? Well, I had nothing to do with it. The editor of Yale Press called me up and invited me. He said, you know, we have a real need. And this was a science and tech, sci-tech editor at Yale Press, which is a strange request for him to make, that uh, he said that there aren't enough books in uh, among the science readership that tell about the science of other cultures. In other words, somebody else's Big Bang, somebody else's constellation, somebody else's understanding of the natural world. And we were wondering if you knew of anybody or even yourself would be interested in writing such a book. Uh, And he said, the other need we have is for a book about creation stories, you know, about where the world came from and how it all came about. Of course, we have our Darwin and our Einstein and our Copernicus, but what did the Maya have? What did the Chinese have? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's an interesting invite. I said, I'll, 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 I guess I'd be interested. And he said, well, which book do you want to do? And I said, well, I'll do a book I'll call Star Stories, Constellations and People. And Yale published that uh, last year. And then the editor came back to me and said, how'd you like to write the other book? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, yeah, why not? They treated me very well. They did a beautiful job with Star Stories. They had the uh, uh, wonderful artist, Matthew Green, who did all the illustrations and frontispiece and so on really interesting animation, kind of animated kind of art. And so I just finished submitting that manuscript to them. That book will come out in early 2022. So kind of like uh, two bookends. But the interest in this came about, I have to say, since we're talking largely to Colgate people, through the J term, which I understand is now being revivified. Back in the 60s, you know, which is a really interesting time, as a lot went on in the culture of the 60s, and many of my former students remember that, the sit-in and all the other things that happened. But among the things that came out of uh, all of that uh, uh, really questioning of the way we're learning and understanding the world was the idea of um, uh, Colgate people going into the field and taking students with them. In other words, not simply learning out of books, but uh, contact learning. Uh, And I thought, wow, this sounds like a great way to get out of town. If I could come up with a brilliant concept, I, uh, some of my unbrilliant, non-brilliant concepts included, uh, let's do astronomy at the telescope. Well, you don't do that in January. Six of my students ended up being treated down at the hospital for frostbite. Uh, <laughs> but I did take students for the first time in 70. Um, and uh, we went to Mexico, the idea being that uh, we would explore the astronomically possibility of astronomically oriented buildings. Now, at that time, Stonehenge was a big controversy. There was all this stuff about the great megalithic structure in Britain and how the spaces between the archways of this magnificent uh, uh, edifice built in 3000 BC might have pointed to the sun and the moon and the stars. That's where we caught the idea 
And again, it wasn't my idea. It was a couple of wise guy students came up to me after nearly freezing to death at the telescope. And we'd been reading about Stonehenge and they said to me, you know, hey, professor, they used to love to call me professor, which hmm. I love being called. Uh, why don't we go down to Mexico next January and we'll measure all of these, we'll measure these buildings. And I looked at uh, the student who happened to be, to have been Bruce Selleck, the late Bruce Selleck from the geology department wow. who ended up being my dean, both my dean and my student. <laughs> and I said, well, Bruce, that's the duh. And before I got the word dumbest out, I looked out the window and I saw the snow coming down horizontally in January. And I said, uh, brightest idea I've heard in a long time. <laughs> so at the end of that year, at, uh, in January of 70, actually, end of December, uh, a dozen of us, including two or three Skidmore uh, transfers who happened to have dad's cars, uh, hopped into these vans. Actually, they would have been big station wagons, as we call them in those days. 1970 Ford LTD was one of them. Drove 30,000 miles um, all the way to Mexico, visited uh, 35 sites. I should correct that, 11,000 miles, visited 35 sites, and came back with something to do for the next 25 years. So we really broke ground accidentally in studying astronomical orientations of ancient Mexican buildings, period. Wow. Very cool. Um, I do have a story, a question uh, uh, specifically about that in a little bit, too. Um, but before before I move there, I do want to just go back to star stories quickly and ask what your favorite star story from that book is and why. Well, I think my favorite story is uh, uh, about Orion. I have a whole chapter on Orions around the world. And now in the Greek uh, literature, uh, Orion is kind of a, well, I mean, he's a male uh, chauvinist. Uh, he uh, he is a hunter, a, brag, a, bra, a braggart. He drinks a lot. Uh, he talks about wanting to kill every animal in the forest because he's such a good hunter. Along comes uh, Diana, who was the goddess of the moon and a friend of Artemis, who was a, uh, the goddess of the hunt. And they get together and conspire, these two women, to take Orion down because he's going to kill every animal in the forest. So they blind him. I mean, let's face it, gods can do anything they want to you. They blind him. And uh, of course, later he's forgiven. That always happens in our culture, it doesn't it? I mean, people are forgiven, they write books and they end up running for office. But in any event, he's forgiven, but he goes right back out and does the same thing. So they decide to place him in the sky. First, they send a scorpion to sting him on the heel. I hope I'm not boring you with the story, but it's no, not No, this mine. is great. No. They sting, the scorpion stings him on the heel. Uh, he gets placed in the sky in a prominent location for when he appears, which is during the hunting season, that's a warning to everybody to respect the animals that uh, you kill. You should kill only for what you eat uh, and uh, be a good citizen. So that's the Orion story. What, what I found that was so interesting about the Orion story is that Orion is not the same in all of the cultures. Hmm. Uh, in uh, in um, South America, he's a one-legged hunter. Uh, and his leg is chopped off by his mother-in-law uh, because he goes out and cheats on his wife. That's really <laughs> a neat story. Does the women some justice. Uh, in the uh, case of the Maya, uh, Orion has three bright stars that form a triangle, as three stars would, uh, which is the uh, hearthstone, the, the three hearthstones of creation, which is the place where the world was formed. And what's neat about it and this is why this is the most interesting story for me. 
is that in the Maya case, the flame that lights the fire of creation, which is the same as the flame that exists in the hearth in any Maya hut, which has three stones as a cooking surface, uh, happens to be the Orion Nebula, hmm. which is uh, in reality, really the hearth of creation. For if you look at the Orion Nebula with a Hubble Space Telescope picture, you'll see that that's where stars form. It's a seeding uh, uh, mass of gas and interstellar matter out of which stars form. So in a way, the Maya had it right. It really is the, the center of all creation. So I love that story. But there are a lot of other stories about constellations in there. The idea of the book is to show, uh, is really a tribute to the human imagination, hmm. to show that people all around the world um, make patterns in the sky, but they make them uh, to relate to things that are important to them. Hmm. Uh, that's not necessarily always what's important to us. So that's the lesson that comes from the anthropological side of astronomy in this interdiscipline. Ah, that's fascinating. So, you know, given where we are uh, today in the world, um, curious if you know of any constellations, um, either in star stories or not, um, that may have any connection to ancient plagues or pandemics. Has there been any influence uh, that, you know, disease in the ancient world may have had on how the ancients looked at the sky? Well, there are none that I know of, Daniel. Okay. So that's a question that I guess there's, there's not much to it, but I, I can certainly uh, give you a dissertation about the meaning of time. And that's oh. what I, I did on the- uh, My next question. The, the On Media program, and uh, which was interesting because they asked me, well, you wrote a book about time and clocks. What do you got to say about that? But not much on constellations. Okay, all right. Well, so I will jump right into that question. So you were a recent guest on an episode of NPR's On the Media. And on that show, you talked about the history of time and how it dates back to the fifth century Babylonians. Tell us a little bit about what we know about the start of time, I guess, as we know it. Well, as we know it, which is to say, as, as we think of it as an outside agency or a thing, it does go back to the Babylonians because they were the first ones to define it that way. Uh, I mean, we, we see time as a thing because we say, well, you know, uh, time flies. Um, there are good times, bad times, hot times. Well, that, that's, a, that's a thing. That's some objective kind of thing. And it really starts actually, I really want to take it back even farther to the point to the time when we first stuck a stick in the ground, stuck a stick in the ground and made a sundial, hmm. uh, demarcated the passage of time by the shadow cast by the end of that stick. And once we put numbers to that, we had the first sundial. So that's ancient Greco-Roman, uh, which is where we can tr at least trace that as far back uh, as uh, the few hundred, four or 500 uh, BC. But then we kind of let that clock get away from us and take hold of us. And I write in my um, uh, preface to the Empires of Time book, Clocks, Calendars, and Cultures, I want to read the statement because it's such a telling statement in these times, sure. uh, written by an anthropologist who was studying the Nuer, N-U-E-R. They're a tribe that uh, resided, still reside in southern Sudan. The anthropologist spent a lot of time with these people, and he writes this at the end of a long book about Nuer customs. He says, I do not think that they, these people, <clears throat> ever experienced the same feeling of fighting against time or having to coordinate activities with an abstract passage of time. That's what we're talking about here, this abstract idea. 
because their points of reference are mainly the activities themselves, which are generally of a leisurely character. These being no autonomous points of reference to which activities have to conform with precision. And then his last sentence in the book, newer are fortunate. Newer are fortunate. They don't have to struggle against time uh, the way we do. And so we've been fighting against it, uh, you could say since Greco-Roman times, but I peg the start of the real battle against time uh, to have happened in the late Middle Ages, 14th, maybe early 15th century, when the city rose to power in Europe and when uh, there began the struggle, <laughs> I guess you could say, between labor and management. Hmm. It was all about the uh, Burgermeister, Burgelmeisters of the cities in this like Munich, for example, who would keep, tr keep their workers uh, on schedule by ringing the bells in the great glockenspiel, as it's called. I love the word glockenspiel because it means a, a clock that talks to you. <laughs> the friendly face of the clock sitting uh, up on the top of uh, any important building, usually the church uh, or the cathedral in the town or in the town hall, uh, looking down at you, smiling, but then telling you that when these bells ring, it's time for the shearers to go to work. When those bells ring, it's time for the cutters to go to work. When another set of bells rings, it's time for the people who uh, deliver the goods to market to go to work. So these bells all keep us uh, on track, I guess, the way the assembly line clock operates in, uh, well, it used to be Detroit, where the cars are manufactured. You know, everything moving according to schedule. And it's really all about the, uh, it really comes down to capitalism and the control of the workforce. And we've lived with that all our lives. And I'm so interested to see the interviews on media now, people who are trapped in their homes and everything because they can't go back to the normal life they have. We think of occupying every second of this abstract thing we call time. We speak of the 24 7, 365. And now we're not in that at all. We're in that mm -hmm. mode where we've sort of been denied time has kind of released its disciplinary hold on us and we've gotten our wish to loosen the shackles that bind us you know we're always talking about i want more free time i'm going to retire early yeah, right. i want a longer weekend i want a four-day week well by god we've got it now and we don't <laughs> know what to do with it <laughs> your book titled the book of the year a brief history of our seasonal holidays digs into the ancient history behind some of modern holidays like Christmas and Easter. And I wanted to just ask you, you know, seeing how 4th of July will be coming up soon, uh, if you could tell us the history of how fireworks became part of our annual celebration here in the US. Well, fireworks uh, are noise. And what do we do at the end of every cycle of time that we experience? We celebrate it, we usually get into the larder and take out everything that's left to eat because we're gonna start a new cycle. We binge, we drink a lot. Of course, we always restart our clock the next day by making resolutions about how we're gonna behave. I lived in New Orleans for a while and I taught uh, for, for a couple of years at Tulane as visiting uh. a Mellon uh, professor in the humanities of all places, not a really, not a place where I thought I'd ever get invited being a scientist. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'd go to the 
Mardi Gras, at the end of the day, Mardi Gras, promptly at midnight, everything closes um, and out come the street cleaners uh, and they clean the streets and, uh, and everything is nice. And the next morning, the good Christians have the dab of ash on their head because they're going to start life all over again. Fireworks come at that transition point uh, because what goes better with partying uh, and gluttony and drinking than a lot of noise? And so the fireworks really are initiated uh, not so much on the 4th of July. That's an American custom. Uh, but we could say, I suppose, that it's the end of the old regime of being under Britain and now the new regime of being an independent country uh, uh, advocating freedom for all, our Constitution and our uh, uh, Bill of Rights. Uh, but uh, it was originally uh, uh, allocated to New Year's, uh, which is the beginning of a big cycle that, that goes 365 days. But fireworks are all about making noise and partying and, uh, and what goes better with a beer than a fireworks display. And of course, the same goes for graduation. That's uh, what, why the fireworks there. I think it's the same reason because we're, this is the end of our senior year. We're about to go off into the world and hopefully get a job and uh, just shoot the works. Everything uh, up in flames and we, uh, we revel in it. Sometimes it keeps me awake because I'm an early sleeper. <laughs> So you, you talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, your trips to Mexico and leading this annual off-campus study trip uh, in the January term. And you did that for 39 years, right? I did. And so you were conducting measurements of pyramids while you were down there. I'm curious, how many sites through those years did you end up measuring? And what did you find, I guess, broadly? What are some of the more interesting discoveries of that work? Well, I think one of the most interesting is, it, to my embarrassment, I, maybe I just like to embarrass myself. Uh, if I answer the question first, uh, my students and I measured uh, well over a thousand structures over the years, and sometimes remeasured them. I think it was the the fun of it all, and I think my students often reflect on this: is that they were contributing to collect, collecting the data. We would go off and uh, make these measurements, and then they would get to come back and feed everything into the computer and interpret them and uh, now then later go up to the dome you know the uh, uh, planetarium that we have at Colgate the whole visualization lab and interpret uh, these uh, observations and sometimes make discoveries of their own I've published several papers with my students <clears throat> but I think probably the most interesting discovery had to do with the learning about the importance of Venus we had measured a building called the house of the governor uh, at the ruins of Ushmal in Yucatan, a Maya structure dated to the classic, the terminal classic Maya period, about 800 AD. And we kept coming up with the result that it wasn't pointing to where the sun goes down, but to a position slightly off uh, that direction, which seemed to correspond to Venus, the appearance and disappearance of the planet Venus. Huh. Uh, and we knew that Venus was very important to the Maya. There are uh, codices, books with uh, hieroglyphs in them that tell us that they clock the movement of Venus to the inaccuracy of one day in 500 years. Uh, so no reason to think they wouldn't be observing Venus. But the embarrassing point uh, came, and, and this is a, a, probably a wonderful lesson for those who dabble in areas where they don't have an expertise, and then they suddenly learn how to work with somebody who has that expertise. An art historian, rather well-known, came with me there 
on one occasion and I kept telling her, you notice this line here and I showed her the picture and it's published in my Skywatchers book, um, uh, you know, showing all the pictures and everything and the alignments. And I said, it's pointing, it's pointing to Venus. And I said, I wish I had more evidence about Venus. Uh, and she said, well, all you have to do is to look over your head. We're standing in the door jam. And over my head was a hieroglyphic text, which showed the hieroglyph for the planet Venus, hieroglyph number 510 in the Maya syllabary of more than 1,000 hieroglyphs. They didn't have an alphabet. They had syllab syllabic writing so that they were phonetic writing. Uh, and she said, in that text, and she pointed her finger up to the top of the door jam and read it for me, shows not only the symbol of the planet Venus, but it also shows it arranged against the zodiac, where there are images of the constellations of the zodiac. Of course, these are in my hieroglyphic notation, not our own. And she said, so, Professor, there's your proof right there. And I uh, thought to myself, well, I should have gotten a degree in art history. <clears throat> and I guess I should have gotten a degree in archaeology. But the next best thing to all of that is to work with people who know that, who have that information. And that's the essence of the interdisciplinary study that became archaeoastronomy. It's a merger of the study of culture, anthropology, archaeology, which is a branch of anthropology in the Americas where you study the buried uh, material. And that is my colleague uh, put me wise to art history and iconography. All of these things that go together. So you can't be an astronomer who goes out and does what I call Saturday morning research, you know, where you just take your armed with your astronomical knowledge and nothing else, you go off and decipher some mysterious place. It's not done that way. So in 1982, uh, when you received your award as the National uh, Teacher of the Year, you were interviewed on the Today Show by Bryant Gumbel. Um, there's a there's a video on your website there. It was, I, I thought, a surprisingly hardball interview for winning an award of Teacher of the Year. Um, but he asked the question, and he said, uh, "A good." He asked you, "What what makes a good teacher?" And you said, "A good teacher is a person who enjoys being with his students, who enjoys seeing their minds develop, and who enjoys following them through their careers, not only in college but after college." So, do you still today think this is the hallmark of good teaching, being a good teacher? And are there any students or anyone in particular whose careers you're most particularly proud of to have been able to follow? Well, a lot of questions there, Daniel. I but I have to say, first of all, that that was the biggest day uh, of my life and my mother's life. Uh. And I think also for George Langdon, late president of Colgate's life, because after I did that Gumbel interview, he called me up and he said, you know, before you talked about teaching, you said that I was the one who nominated you for that award. And I was really thrilled. It was a, was a big day for Colgate. And I never thought for a moment that I'm number one. You know, we have the, the, the Tom Brady of teaching. But, you know, these awards are given uh, uh, to recognize not so much individuals, but as it kinds of teaching that go on. And in this case, it was a recognition of the small nose-to-nose, uh, -nose, eyeball to eyeball kind of education you get in liberal arts at Colgate. And that's why I'm so devastated now at the absence of any people on the campus, because we've lost, temporarily, I'm sure, what we do the best. Mm -hmm. Being with those kids, and I still call them that, uh, face to face in the room, 
back and forth in a continual process that I've, I've never found a day in my life when I wasn't thrilled to go in and do that. I mean, it's, I shouldn't, I, I can say it now because I'm retired. Don't even, shouldn't even get paid uh, to do a thing like that. Yes, I follow the careers of my students closely over the years and I joyed, overjoyed at the contacts with them. I just got a letter this morning, an email from Amy Silva, class of 78, my first Latina, uh, upper, uh, upper uh, Bronx, uh, who uh, uh, wrote and told me that uh, my kids are always asking me, uh, my students are always asking me, my, my children are always asking me, she's a teacher by the way, had a great job in New York with the uh, Metropolitan uh, Museum of Art, uh, running education programs. <clears throat> and she said, they always ask me, why am I looking at that thing called the Colgate scene? And she said, I always look at this to see uh, if what my professor Avini is doing. We've followed each other closely. I was uh, tragically informed of the death of one of my former students, Mitchell Ruda, class of 70, 71, one of the most brilliant students I ever had. He designed the dome lenses on the Gemini spacecraft. Uh, he was an absolutely brilliant uh, student who loved the study of optics and telescopes and telescope making. Uh, and I have to say, it's a depressing time when you preside at the funeral of one of your students. I don't want to get morbid. I'm pretty old. And you know, you can do the statistics on life expectancy, but I couldn't believe that Mitch had passed away so early. One of my favorite people of all time is uh, to go from 1971 is uh, uh, Sam, uh, uh, I have to get, now she's now married. So I have to <laughs> rethink what her name is. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just gonna say Samantha for now. I'm not gonna- That's uh, fine, I'm, yeah. I'm What's that? Yeah, Samantha Newmark, Lorraine just told me. eleven. <laughs> Uh, who uh, now teaches at Chapman University in Los Angeles. We spend the winters, Lorraine and I, uh, at um, in Palm Springs. And uh, she comes to visit us every year. Um, she is uh, was Orthodox Jewish. And um, when she got married, um, she married a non-Jew. And the uh, rabbi didn't want to do the wouldn't do the ceremony. And she asked me to do it. And I'd never done it before. Well, I found that you can get ordained online for 28 bucks. And a lot of people do this. So it's not any great accomplishment. Right, right. But I absolutely thrilled uh, at uh, running that ceremony is three or four years ago now, I think five years. Uh, and I liked in my last days of teaching to be able to show a picture of this kid who was with me in the fields, who's there with all the instruments and everything and saying, and at last, this is the girl that I married. And of course, all the students turn and look at each other and say, Professor Mary, he must be 50 years older than she is. And I say, well, I mean, uh, in the case of Mary, that I performed right, the right. ceremony of Mary. <laughs> it leaves them of any uh, ill thoughts they might have. But I, I, well, too numerous to mention. And, you know, uh, Brian Carroll, uh, if you're out there, and, and Barb Toner, uh, and, and uh, there are just there's so many students I follow. I'm sorry I didn't mention names. But you know who you are, and uh, I think one of the great joys of teaching uh, in these days, yeah, Bruce Crowley, of course, Bob Seberg, the names are rattling around in my head. I mean, yeah, I contact, sure. they contact me and I contact them all the time. 
Yes, Dale Smith, class of 70. Lorraine is hollering names out to me. Thank you, dear. I have to say Lorraine is not my partner in life only for 62 years, but she was the one who did all of the photography in the field and all of the editing of my books. So we have always operated as a team. But I have to say, and just concluding the answer to that question, when I first came to Colgate, 63, I heard about this alumni weekend uh, and I would uh, not pay much attention to it. I thought it was a silly thing. They have all these tents down there in a parade and I would have, what an idea that is. It didn't take me long, maybe 10, 15 years before I began to go to that for some reason, very obvious reason. It's now my favorite uh, day of the year. I enjoy it more than Christmas. We had on one occasion, uh, some years ago, people in our living room on the Saturday afternoon when I opened the house from the class of 32 to 93, over 50 wow. years worth of alumni in my house. Wow. Um, and I really miss the fact that we don't have it this year yeah. because there's some great people from the class of uh, 70 who are celebrating 50 this year uh, that I'm going to miss, but we'll do it next year as we will with the class of 20. <clears throat> great times here. Great times. So in the description for your book, People and the Sky, Our Ancestors and the Cosmos, you write, for most of human history, people found meaning in the dance of the cosmic denizens. Today, many aspects of this intimate contact between daily life and what happens in the sky have disappeared. Did our ancestors have an understanding of the cosmos that we ourselves lack? So how and why did this all happen? Well, I can give you the best answer I think I can give you to that question, which I talk about in People in the Sky, um, is uh, I can answer that by referring to the most recent, my most recent book, not yet out, but due out with Yale Press called um, Creation Stories, Imagination, Landscape and the Human Imagination reason why I'm faltering on the title is the editor at Yale and I just decided on that title. <laughs> the key is the word landscape. I don't write a book unless I've got something to say. I mean, if this has already been said, what's sense writing it? What I deal with in this book about creation stories is landscape. And it is interesting that there is no book that I know of that deals with the topic of landscape when it comes to the story of how the universe was created. Of course, in our own case, the landscape is the vast, now partly penetrable universe of stars and gas and dust and dark matter and so on. The landscapes that I speak about in my creation stories, they come from China, Aboriginal Australia, uh, Navajo land, is not what you see when you look around you. I could look out the window to my right and see a landscape. There's a horizon there. I can see some Colgate buildings. The landscape incorporates people. All of these stories of creation deal with a landscape that includes people. Now, we can't imagine ourselves to be a part of the landscape. I'm not a tree or a stone. I'm not the brook that babbles in my backyard. Although we can say in the modern sense of the word, well, yes, those of us who care about the environment and are concerned about global warming realize that we're all a part of this planet and we must nurture it and take care of it. 
This goes further. You are the landscape. You can't talk about mountains and stars and streams and trees and animals and bugs without talking about people. One of the creation stories, for example, begins in a world where people, people and animals are not differentiable. There are creatures who live in the world who are people animals, animal people. They look a little bit like people, but they look a little bit like animals. Now, if you stop and think about it, Darwin's evolution gives us a similar picture. You can say, in a sense, we descended from these animals. So in fact, you can even go so far as to say, as far as life is concerned, we are related to the coronavirus. We are relatives of the coronavirus. It was more much advanced. And, and, and I don't want to go into comparing my mentality with that of a bug that's infesting us, although the bug isn't doing such a bad job for a brainless critter. Uh, but, but it's a very different definition, and it needs to be honed in great detail. And the only way you can do it is to understand, you have to understand the culture. So you have to talk about these Australian Aboriginal people, where they live. Uh, they live in a land of caves. Little wonder that the underground is the part of the landscape where the world develops. And so that's why the different sections uh, of my new book on creation stories, people and landscape, and the human and the human imagination, um, has sections or parts entitled caves, mountains, waterways, hmm. extreme environments like the frigid north and Tierra del Fuego, and so on. Hmm. Well, I ramble on and on. That's a long answer to a very good question. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and I, 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 I want to go down an, another path here, too, in that you've also written um, some books that touch on some more mystical and occult subjects. And one of one of those books, it was Behind the Crystal Ball, Magic, Science and the Occult from Antiquity through the New Age. It was published in 2002, or I guess the revised edition in 2002. Um, and at the time, the New York Times wrote, Mr. Ravini's not out to debunk occult practices, just the opposite. He argues that magic has had a bum rap through history and that deep down science and magic are perhaps more alike than we might care to admit. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit? I know you have a whole book about it, but can you tell us a little yeah. bit about the comparison? Well, yeah, I mean, I got into that. It's actually published in 96. Okay. First edition by Random House and then reissued later two or three forms. Translated into uh, Arabic, Chinese, Japanese. Wow. We have about 15 different countries, presses that have translated. Uh, uh, a tip to my fellow faculty members, if you want to write for a broader public, it's not a bad idea to have a literary agent. <laughs> End of plug. Um, <laughs> having done archaeoastronomy for about 25 years, I merged or verged, if you will, on the boundaries of science and other disciplines. Uh, and I began to read some of this occult stuff, which was very in in the heyday of uh, the new age back in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and I didn't find anybody who had really talked about pseudoscience in a way that made much sense. I mean, there were scientists who debunked it and debased it, as rightly much of such literature should be dealt with. On the other hand, there were people who lauded it, not so much scientists, 
there was a division of belief about this sort of thinking, this magical thinking. It was either all crazy stuff, which is what the scientists wrote about. I think of Carl Sagan's Dragons of Eden and other stuff that was published in those days. Uh, or you would get publications and books there where we would talk about that being the only way to think. And I think it's interesting that we have this dichotomy in our culture right now uh, of magical thinking mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and scientific thinking. And the sciences aren't doing so well uh, today in this epidemic. So maybe a, a reissuance of that book is, <laughs> isn't a bad idea. Uh, but I, what I tried to do was to explore the, not just the message, but where it came from and why people believe what they believe. That was my investigation. Why do people believe what they believe? And I can add the temporal element when they believe it. Hmm. Uh, and that was what I undertook to discuss in that book. And again, I found that uh, it's all couched deeply in the culture. Uh, it, it's all about ideas that make sense to people in the context of the culture in which they live. And there's no way we're ever going to understand what makes sense to the newer uh, tribesmen, you know, the semi-sedentary tribesmen of uh, South Sudan. It certainly isn't our notion of the scientific Big Bang. That doesn't make any sense at all. So you develop these, one develops these ideas about understanding nature. And that's what we're talking about here. The understanding of and relationship to the natural world based in culture. It's about what makes sense to the people who talk about it. And I have to add also that these people really don't talk about this absolute objective truth that we immerse ourselves in and which does so much, is of such great value to us. They're different ways of thinking. You're also the guy that the press calls upon uh, when it comes to chatter about the apocalypse uh, oh, yes. many times, I know. Uh, and you've written a couple books about the subject, including your work titled The End of Time, The Maya Mystery of 2012, which focused on the doom and gloom predictions around the end of the Mayan calendar. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Why didn't the world end? Well, I mean, one could say, look, Avini, why don't you mind your business and stick to what you do? It was a natural evolution for me because once I began to go outside of my discipline of the, 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 the sciences and ask how do these sciences apply to these other cultures, how do, we, uh, how do we talk to these people, I got interested in the debunking of astrology. There'd been a lot of books about debunking astrology. Hmm. And I wrote a book called Conversing with the Planets, which like Behind the Crystal Ball, takes up the question, um, uh, is as above, so below. In other words, what goes on above in heaven relates to what goes on down here on earth. What's the truth or falsity of that statement? I was motivated to do that in teaching astronomy 101 and 102 for years when students would come to me and say, well, what about astrology? And when I was a young uh, astronomer, astrophysicist, fresh out of graduate school, I didn't even want to participate in the core program in those days uh, because I was so narrowly focused. Didn't get my education in liberal arts till I came to Colgate, <laughs> I would tell them, well, that's not, that's not what I do. And I thought, well, why not? Don't I have a perspective on that? Uh, and so I researched the origins of astrology and its relation to astronomy. Uh, and I regard astrology as the elder uh, sister of astronomy, at least it has been all around the world until basically the enlightenment. That's what changed it in our culture. 
a mere few hundred years ago. So we mm -hmm. might say, well, who are we to go around and say we have the absolute hold on truth? Uh, and so I wrote a book called Conversing with the Planets. I'll never forget. It was reviewed in the Times, as was Behind the Crystal Ball, by the guy who discovered uh, the Ebola virus. I don't remember his name. But he went through this review. It was in the Sunday Times. And Avini does this. And then Avini talks about that. And then Avini talks about this. And so on and so on. At the end, he says, but of course, uh, all of this is total nonsense, uh, as we who uh, discovered the Ebola virus know, because before we de de developed the Ebola virus, uh, discovered the cure to the Ebola virus, to, to, to the problem, he said, uh, people around here in Africa were worshiping the Ebola god. Well, he totally missed the point of my book. Uh, it's always, for the scientist, about debunking, it seems, debunking what you don't know. Uh, and I'm not advocating, as you quoted me before from a review, I'm not advocating that we should believe in these things. We should try to understand the other with a capital O. Part of that means that we have to understand what they might perceive as the relationship to the natural world. Uh, and so uh, that's the basis of my writing. Now, I think I may have missed the last part of your question, so you might want to repeat it, if, unless I answer Oh no, I think it's I think that covers it. Yeah. I think that does. And, and you know, I also have a uh, I was curious, you know, you've written about such a wide range of subjects and this like very interdisciplinary, you know, you talk about the liberal arts and coming at things from different angles and I'm very curious as um some of your work has come out and how some of the some of these books have this close contact with the occult and mysteries of the unknown, um you know, unsolved mysteries things like that. What's do you have it, any really crazy stories about people who have reached out to you? Yes. Uh, have, have you been the, I, I guess, the uh, recipient of just some some wild messages or some, some people who have tried to get in touch with you? Well, let me approach that by actually returning to your last question, because you asked me about the uh, the two books that I wrote, The End of Time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that's the one that contains probably the one of the most interesting stories. And then after that, I wrote um, Apocalyptic Anxiety. Right. Uh, two books. Now, again, I go where the liberal arts take me. I mean, I'm really trying to express what liberal arts is to the common person here. Uh, I, I'm not trying to speak. I'm speaking from my own expertise as a scientist. But the mystery of the, the Maya, the, uh, the end of time, came about. Uh, because of the so-called end of the world that was going to happen in 2012. Some people may remember uh, that um, there was all of this stuff in the, in the media about a prediction that the, the sun was going to pass the center of the galaxy and occult a black hole and cause its rays to come to us and we would have sudden death. The world would uh, uh, never be the same one advocate one advocate said that it would be destroyed another said there'd be a new age that would come upon us all of a sudden i got a call from a halifax nova scotia freshman in high school and he said told me that he'd been reading about this is this really going to happen you're a professor that writes about this is this end of the world really going to happen um and i email back and forth with him and his friends who were quite seriously concerned about this. Huh. Then I began to get some emails from 
young people who were talking about, I remember one 15 year old girl talking about suicide as being the only possibility to get out of this. This is the end of the world. And she and her friends have been talking about that. And uh, my young Halifax friend said, professor, you have to write about this. And after back and forth, a lot of back and forth, um, I did. I wrote a book called The End of Time, The Maya Mystery of 2012, in which I tried to show that the Maya did not predict the end of the world. Rather, they predicted a, a new time cycle. Shoot the fireworks off because the next day we're going to make the world better. We're going to make these resolutions and make it better. You have to read the whole book to get the essence of it. Uh, and, and then after I wrote that book, I got still more uh, uh, mail and uh, correspondence. I say male now in the old sense of the word, uh, a lot of back and forth blogging and so on uh, about why in America, this is such a big deal. The French and the Chinese didn't worry so much about the end of the world. Why are we so hung up on it? So I uh, got in touch with my good friends, Chris Vesey on the faculty and other people, you know, people who study religion and American religion. We had some great conversations uh, and I, I I, I am not the one who invented this idea. I think it's pretty well known that we are America, the religious, and that we went through uh, two great awakenings back in the uh, 19th and 18th centuries uh, the, the, when uh, this idea of uh, a second coming, a second coming of Christ, uh, uh, Jesus as Christ was forecast to take place. Interestingly enough, much of this idea of apocalyptic thinking uh, at the end of the world took place in central New York, which was known as the burned over district. We still have up in Oneida, uh, the famous uh, house by John Noyes. They were practicing uh, uh, rather odd forms of religious worship, communal living. Uh, and it's well known that our area in central New York was the burned over district, burned over because it was fiery hot with uh, this apocalyptic thinking. Hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, why here? Well, as I say, as I point out in the book, uh, it's the Erie Canal that's partly responsible because the Erie Canal is that narrow conduit between New England, which was the home ground of all of the outcasts from religion in the Anglican church, the Puritans and pilgrims, people who were extremists uh, over there in terms of their belief, who came to the new world as a place where there would be a city on the hill where Christ would be resurrected and we would have uh, the judgment day. Uh, and they, uh, those who were the creme de la creme of extremists who couldn't even be toler tolerated in Boston, Hartford and New Haven, migrated out the Erie Canal and settled in Rochester. And around here, Rochester was actually the focal point. Did you know that the first seance took place near Rochester, New York? I did not. In 1848, uh, when the Fox sisters, who were media, uh, mediums, I suppose you could say, would gather together and uh, around a table, and there would be a table tipping and speaking to the dead. This was during the time when Morse code had just been devised, and so they could tap out messages on the wooden table. Fascinating period of history. So there is a connection between wow. the idea of the end of the world in central New York in the 19th century, and I suppose you could say the Big Bang, which was the ending of the world uh, that I was educated to advocate.
it's a long way from there, but that's how liberal arts took me on my path. Ah. Well, you've made it to question 13. Ah, finally, uh, I have a few minutes left. <laughs> um, I, I try to ask something a little bit uh, different. Little well, you're you're well read in my uh, oh, area. I well, I, <laughs> you have a lot of stuff. I, I have not read everything, obviously. And I, I actually have a few more I've added to my reading list now. But um, I do want to ask, have you ever watched the History Channel show Ancient Aliens? And have they gotten anything right that you've seen? And if not, I have one final question. Yeah. I have watched it. I have been invited on occasions to participate I wondered. in it. I have refused to have anything to do with it because it is too heavily slanted yeah. in the direction of one kind of belief about these things. It's sensational. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't want to be the Anthony Fauci, if you will, who at the end of the day comes back and tries to make everybody sane. You know, <laughs> it's at the end of the you day, of course, here's what we believe. These people are not interested in experts. Experts died a few years back. Mm. Uh, but I think they have to make money and they have business. Uh, and so, uh, uh, yeah, so maybe you have another question. But yeah, no, I, I, I have participated in a number of, well, programs and so on. I, I kind of favor PBS over, sure. uh, you know, over the yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, no, kind of connecting to that, I, I was, you know, I was shocked that you had never been on, or at least I, I wasn't sure if you had been invited on. So it doesn't surprise me that you were, yeah. obviously. Have you in your investigations um, and your visits to the various Mayan pyramids and historic sites? So have you ever found any um, evidence in the hieroglyphs or anything else that you think does point to alien visitation? I have not. And I think I'm my, my current project, and I'm just starting it, and I don't know yet if I'll have enough to say to make a book out of it. Uh, at, at least I got a tentative title. It's going to be E, capital E, capital T, O-P-I-A, Etopia. Huh. Uh, and uh, extraterrestrial life uh, is, of course, always on our minds. Wouldn't it be neat if there were another culture or civilization out there that well, not only that it was living, I mean, to find even find a microbe in, uh, in on another planet would be a great discovery because we'd be asking about is there whether there's a commonality to the origin of life. Big question. Uh, but it seems to me that we're always looking for ourselves uh, to imagine that there would be an extraterrestrial being, Maya or not, uh, who, and God knows there's a lot of literature about how the Americas were filled with ancient aliens That's right 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 topic that goes way back into the 70s um i can't imagine that there would be any living form that not only that i would meet face to face but that would even have a face that would have a backbone you ought to read some of uh, i advise people to read uh, some of stephen jay gould's the late stephen jay gould's literature is a great paleontologist wrote Bully for Brontosaurus and a number of other subjects about origins of life and evolution. If you run the tape backwards, he says, and then play it again from 3 billion BC, there isn't the slightest chance that it would play out the same way. Hmm. Maybe whatever this life form is, if it exists, intelligent or not, could be green slime rather than a vertebrate being with a face. 
Hmm. Uh, so you'd be talking about communicating with intelligent green slime. The anthropology part of my liberal arts education, however, teaches me that the likelihood that even intelligent green slime would be interested in communicating with us is remote because we in the Western world are the only ones who've taken the trouble to go around and civilize, colonize, make use of the material goods of other cultures of the world. And all you have to do is to look at the continent of Africa today to see what that exploitation has done to it over the course of 500 years. Hmm. So I'm in a pessimistic mood when it comes to that. But I do think there's interesting work going on in the now new interdisciplinary field of astrobiology, which has to do with the search for life not necessarily intelligent, life, extremophile life, not just under the oceans of Antarctica, uh, Arctic and Antarctic area, but even on some remote cold locations in the solar system, such as a couple of the satellites of Jupiter. That's really interesting because the question there is, is life universal uh, or is it just something that happened by some spark, you can keep divine in there if you want, that kindled it all in one place in the universe. Think of the impact that has on religion, anthropology, science, everything that belongs in the melting pot that we call the liberal arts. Well, that was 13. Professor Avini, thank you so much for joining us for this recording. Uh, Special thanks to our listeners for bearing with us as we record this podcast remotely. Uh, And I also uh, want to take a moment again to uh, send our best wishes to everyone out in the Colgate extended family. Be well. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.